continue our review of the attributes of God preparatory to the consideration of a final moral attribute of God embodied in the question, what do we know about the faithfulness of God from the Bible? We have for many months been studying the Bible presentation of the nature of God. We have reasoned together of things which we may learn about God from the wonderful pattern of creation of which we are a part. Inexhaustible design prevails from the millions of light years of the astronomer to the tiny observations of the microscope. But only the Bible sets forth the revelations of the inner nature of God and unfolds to us the thoughts, emotions, and will of our great Creator. In an endeavor to classify what the Bible teaches about God, the word attribute has come into use. An attribute is simply a thing that is true about a person or a thing. So we may formulate such expressions of facts concerning God by digesting direct statements about God or accounts of the revealed actions of God. These things which we conclude to be true about God at once fall into two categories. Those characteristics of the being and nature of God which are involuntary or which God cannot help to possess and those which are voluntary or which are so simply because God has chosen to conduct himself in such a manner. The first group are called natural attributes, while the second group are called moral attributes, since they indicate moral character. We stand in awe at the profoundness of the natural attributes of God, but we are profoundly moved to respect and reverence at the moral attributes or the moral character of God. The holiness of God is not something that is automatic, but is ascribed to God because of what he has chosen to be and continues moment by moment to be. The Apostle Paul, that penetrating intellect, fostered by divine fellowship, wrote, For now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face, as in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 12. But we do see through a glass darkly, and what we see is true by the grace of God and in perfect harmony with divine reality. Let us therefore first sum up briefly the natural attributes of God, which we have discussed quite at some length some months ago. First, the Bible reveals the eternity of God in the words such as appears in Psalm chapter 90, verse 2, where we read, From everlasting to everlasting thou art God. This is what we would expect to find revealed concerning God. We are well aware that each one of us have had a beginning of life and shall have an end of life as far as this world is concerned. We were brought into this world by our parents and they by theirs and so on back to the revealed beginning of the human race in Adam and Eve. The first cause, God, must have self-sustaining 
an independent life, or he must be uncaused. Thus the Bible reveals the eternal existence of the Godhead as having inhabited an endless duration, and beyond this does not attempt to go. In Revelation 4.8 we have adoration bestowed upon God in the words, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. The simple Bible picture is that there has been an eternal past to God, that there is a conscious present when God calls upon all men to repent of sin and be reconciled to him in present fellowship, and that there is an eternal future that God greatly desires that men shall spend with him. The Lord Jesus, in his high priestly prayer, spoke to the Father, of the glory which I had with thee before the world was, as recorded in John chapter 17 and verse 5. This plainly indicated his pre-existence. Thus the triune spiritual being of the Godhead have always existed of necessity. But secondly, the omnipresence of God is a declaration of the fact that the spiritual being of God pervades all space in the same sense, or that God is everywhere present. If we say that we cannot understand how the Godhead can be everywhere present at the same time, we reply that this should not be surprising to anyone. If we could comprehend this immeasurable feature of the divine existence, we would be God and not men. God spoke to the prophet Jeremiah, Do not I fill heaven and earth? As in the 23rd chapter, verse 24. We are not entirely without understanding, however, since we are conscious of occupying a small portion of space and have some limited appreciation of the extensiveness of the space around us. Just as with time and eternity we ascribe to God an unlimited occupancy of what we occupy only a tiny segment of. Thus the Bible does no more than describe our expectations. So the Apostle Paul affirmed at Athens as found in the book of Acts, chapter 17, verse 24. God that made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples made with hands. Verse 27, that they should seek the Lord, if happily they might feel after him and find him, though he be not far from every one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as certain also of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. Thus the Apostle Paul conceived and brought forth the concept that God was everywhere present, and that if men would open their hearts to him, they would find the reality of God consciousness. Nothing we do escapes the observation of God, as we read about in Hebrews chapter 4 
and verse 13. Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and opened unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. And so, even as a professing atheist was once convinced of the existence of God, so we have abundant evidence. This atheist uh, sought to influence his daughter toward his unbelief by writing the words, God is nowhere. But this little daughter made a little mistake as she sought to copy his words and separated the last word into two words, which changed the meaning completely. Therefore she wrote, God is now here. This so struck her father's conscience in response to the movements of the spirit that he was brought under conviction and in due time forsook his atheism and was converted to God. Thus the fact that God is everywhere present guarantees the certainty that sin will be judged and that true Christians will be known and blessed. But in the third place, we know that God is also said to be omniscient, by which we understand that all knowable facts are known to God. There is no deficiency in God's knowledge. In Psalm 147.5 we read, Great is our Lord, and of great power. His understanding is infinite, or is beyond measure. There has been a great deal of speculation in the church, particularly in recent centuries, as to the extensiveness of God's knowledge. Many of her greatest minds have endeavored to reconcile certainty and contingency. To our native concepts, they are opposite. What is certain will certainly be, and whatever is contingent may or may not be. This latter word, of course, relates to moral beings who have been given a free will to guide their own actions. If we must act only in one direction to fulfill an event that is known to be certain, then how can there be any meaning to our faculty of free will? Many have had great problems with this question, and thus volumes have come to be written in an attempt to ease this situation. God is supposed to gain no new knowledge, whatever, from any source, including himself. The philosophy has gained wide acceptance that there is no succession of events or processes in the being of God. While we are very conscious of the passing of time ourselves, apart from which succession we can form no conception whatever as to how a moral being could exist and act apart from this succession, God is supposed to exist apart from time or in some kind of an eternal now. This phrase has been coined to convey the idea in the minds. But without again entering into a discussion of this philosophy, this certainly proves too much. For if God cannot today have a new thought that he never thought of before, and as a consequence make a new decision of will that he never had made before, then what proof do we have that he ever could have done so?
Thus, not only is man involved in the problem of freedom, but also it appears to many that God is so involved. For there never was a time upon this supposition when a new decision was made, and thus blind fate appears to many to take over. But the Bible knows nothing of this complication. It does not hesitate one bit to say that God repented or changed his mind on a number of occasions when certain tragic or happy situations arose. One great leader of nearly a century ago who believed the Bible to be the Word of God said, Theology has much to unlearn before it will be either reasonable or biblical. Nowhere does the Bible affirm that God now knows every decision that he shall ever make throughout all eternity, every thought that he shall think throughout all eternity. Yea, the very reverse is true. The Bible pictures God as making new observations of the actions of his creatures, as having serious and profound reactions because of these observations, and of pondering what should be done, and in making up his mind to take certain actions in view of these situations. But we must continue in our next visit. Our Heavenly Father, how we thank thee for thy giving of the Bible, that it reveals to us thy true nature. And we thank thee above all that thou didst so love the world, that thou didst give the Lord Jesus to die for the sins of the whole world. Now we pray that many may repent and through faith be reconciled to thee. In Jesus' name, amen.